The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at HalliburtonLabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to the Energy Scale-Ups podcast. I'm your host, Jose Solis, and today I am joined by Mr. Brian Arntz. Brian is the product manager at Combo Curve. Hey, Brian, how's it going? Hey, great, Jose. Great to talk to you. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's good to catch up again. So we met back in about 2018, but I know a little bit about you, but for the listeners that might not be familiar with you, would you mind just giving a brief interview or brief background of your bio? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm a Texas A&M petroleum engineer by background. Started my career early on with the Marathon Oil. So I started out right at the boom of the Eagleford, was a first production engineer with boots on the ground for our asset there. Got a lot of experience getting to see 450 wells drilled a year and putting on production at the time. So right into the thick of things. Spent my first five, six years at Marathon working in various different disciplines and getting to see all the different challenges and exciting aspects. At the time, I started meeting the CEO of Ambient, who's about to go to market as a technology startup with a really cool vision to bring artificial lift optimization into the 21st century. And you know, it really got me thinking, you know, a marathon, really technology forward company, as I said, putting on 450 wells per year into production in these new assets. And even with us being technology forward, we just didn't have the tools to keep up with that pace. So seeing the vision of what Ambient wanted to do and being an early technology player in the space got me really excited. So jumped on board with Ambient, made the switch over to the technology company, worked at Ambient for about five years. I started off as a customer success manager, which really just meant I was the spearhead with our customers, making sure that a they were onboarded correctly, that our software was solving their problems, that I was answering their questions and making them successful in what they wanted to adopt our product for. A little bit into that, made the switch over to product management, which is where I've kind of found my career home for now. So been working in product management for the last four years or so, and recently made the switch over to a company called Combo Curve. So really excited to be here. Taking Combo Curve is taking forecasting, economics, decline curve analysis to the next level really exciting vision for growing this company and already delivering a lot of value to our customers. So when you first started in the industry, did you ever think, like, especially having gone through all of that training to become an engineer in the sense of like in petroleum engineering, did you ever think that you would make the transition to a technology company? And, you know, you briefly touched on it, but what was like probably the biggest catalyst to drive you to transition over to an early stage technology company? Yeah. I mean, in my wildest dreams, I never would have thought that I'd be working for a technology company. You know, I grew up in an oil field family. My dad worked in the energy space for 40 years. So I lived in Midland, Texas, Hobbs, New Mexico, several trips to and from Houston. So I grew up in the oil field and, you know, that's what drew me to petroleum engineering in the first place. And so, yeah, I think the world has changed. The technology space has changed a lot. And in terms of what, you know, drew me to this, Early in my career, I realized that I loved the technical engineering side of things. 
but I started to gravitate more towards the process optimization and project management side of things. Gotcha. I had an early boss who recognized this and put me through Six Sigma training. So basically a process optimization framework. And so through that, I was able to go and conduct interdisciplinary projects there at Marathon, getting my green belt and ultimately my black belt certification in Six Sigma and really seeing the value that a big organization can have through implementing lean processes and how working with all the different disciplines and making sure that we've got a streamlined process can add a lot of value. So when I started seeing, you know, the impetus of cloud computing, data analytics, all of these buzzwords that we're all too familiar with at this point, and it just really got me thinking, if we can add this much value to one company, imagine what a software company could do by utilizing all of these cutting edge techniques to bring that same process optimization at scale in conjunction with data analytics, artificial intelligence, cloud computing, et cetera. So yeah, that just kind of tickled your curiosity to the point where you're like, I got to go do something. I got to get involved in this part of the industry and see where I can, you know, make a difference or, you know, make a big impact, right? Absolutely. And, you know, working in oil and gas was just too stable for me. So I had to go and join an early stage underfunded startup to, you know, get some of that risk <laughs> in my life. <laughs> so I'm assuming, and maybe you can touch on some of these, but I mean, you probably picked up a pretty good amount of skills in your early career that helped you be very successful with an oil and gas or an energy startup, technology startup. What were some of the, probably those key elements that really helped you? Because you're having to understand your customers' problems at a very deep level, especially as a customer success manager, right? So you're talking to engineers, you're talking to people who would have been your peers if you would have worked together somewhere, right? So maybe can you kind of touch on some of that a little bit, how that served you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, as a young petroleum engineer, I think we're often put into positions of managing complex projects early in our career, which is, you know, relatively unheard of outside of our industry. You know, as a 22-year-old, I was managing a $50 million lease operating budget and, you know, given full responsibility to manage that, which is pretty crazy. So you start thinking about kind of the complexity that comes with that. And as I said, through the, you know, really learning about the process side of things, learning all the different elements of how you can add value by making sure that you've got a clean process moving through different organizations without a bunch of hurdles in the way and, and all that kind of stuff. So when you finally found your way into product management, what was it that sort of snapped for you and said, you know what, this is what I really like to do? Yeah, it's really kind of taking that complex problem solving and then applying it to a whole bunch of different disciplines. So if a product manager is being effective in his or her role, you're really kind of the glue person for your entire organization. So, you know, the way I think about it, product strategy starts by doing market discovery, spending a lot of time with your customers, spending a lot of time with your competitors' customers to understand, you know, what is your competitor doing better than you are so that you can really start bringing that into product strategy. Start spending time with people that don't even recognize that they have the problem that your product is solving so that you can start expanding your product into new verticals and translating all of that, not only into a product strategy, but into a marketing strategy. You know, where are our customers going to hear about us first? How are we making sure that we're marketing that message in a way that resonates with these different types of personas so that, that when they hear about our product, they think, yeah, absolutely, I've got that problem and I need to hear more about this. All the way to, from the customer success side, hey, like, 
when that customer comes in here, we've got all these different types of users using the platform. Have we made it really easy to onboard those customers? Have we made it really easy for them to get value out of our product as soon as possible? So it's been a really fun ride getting just to learn all the different aspects of startup and technology companies. So when it comes to product management, I know that a lot of times companies rely on the product managers to communicate to the development teams the what and not necessarily the how, right? So it's really up to the product manager to bring back, you know, that feedback that you're talking about, collect these, you know, success stories and opportunities for improvement, but you don't necessarily get into the coding and like the technical aspect of how we're going to build it. That's just something that you allow the development teams to do, correct? Exactly, right? I'm not a data scientist. I'm not a software developer, nor do I pretend to be. But I think what a product manager does is take those business problems and translate them into you know, a roadmap and a user story for how we're going to build that and then translate that into the, the language and the framework of how a software developer or a data scientist is going to go build that. And really translating that, how is the user going to interact with this? What is the expected value that a user is going to get from this? But then really rely on you know our software developers being excellent at what they do to determine the best way to code that, the best way to build that out, and really working closely with them to you know ensure that we are solving that problem for the user and translating that across the value spectrum. Now, as somebody who's an engineer by training, do you ever catch yourself trying to like dig into the technical aspects and try and learn like how does this work or how can we make this better? And do you ever have to catch yourself and say, no, that's not what I'm supposed to do? <laughs> yeah. I mean, engineers love to solution things, right? We love to solve problems. And so absolutely something that you catch yourself doing sometimes. And, you know, natural curiosity is something that helps the process, but certainly not getting in and, and figuring out exactly the right way to code this or exactly the right data science algorithm to go and implement here. You've got to have autonomy amongst your teams and really trust your software developers and your data scientists to make sure that they're implementing it in the best way from their perspective. Yeah, that's really interesting. You touched on a little bit, you talked about personas and in the pre-show we talked about it a little bit. And, you know, just kind of looking back on previous experiences where the company that I was with, we had created a user persona and his name was Derek the Driller. And Derek the Driller was, you know, obviously the user of our technology. I mean, which was a physical tool, which was a tool that Derek would use. But we talked about the problems that it solved for Derek and how we were helping Derek's life be a little bit easier and cause him less stress and headaches and stuff of that nature. You sort of talked a little bit about the personas that you guys have built out at Combo Curve, can you talk to those a little bit and maybe kind of tell us a little bit about how, sure, maybe you had something to do with the creation of them or were they already there or how did that come about? Yeah, so a user persona is basically effectively an archetype of what that you know P50 type of user is for that specific type. So, right, you had Derek the driller, we've got Rebecca the reservoir engineer and Frank the finance manager. The point of the catchy names is that so it's really easy to hold on to that information and so as we build out that persona, right, you're kind of understanding what is the background of this person? What are they doing on a day-to-day -day basis? What are the problems they experience in their day jobs? What are they expected to accomplish? What do they do in their spare time even? What was their upbringing like? All of these things help you understand what's going to resonate with them, what types of product features are going to be able to build for them. So, you know, you, you start with this user persona and 
again, really translate that across the organization so that a marketer can know, all right, we've got this new feature and we want to target different types of messaging at these different types of user personas so that they know that this is going to affect them in their day job. But also when we send this over to our design team, these designers are going to be building the user interface and the way that the interface is going to work as they work through a workflow. So they need to understand who is that user that's going to be using this? What value are they going to be getting from it? You know, a lease operator in the field is going to be using a product much differently than, say, a operations manager or a VP level person. So mm-hmm. having your designers understand that as they build the workflow, having your developers understand that as they build out the functionality really helps us make sure that we're keeping the customer's needs and wants front of mind as we build throughout the entire process. Let's change gears for a second because I had recently had been speaking with a company that was creating new technology around artificial intelligence, mainly towards drone imagery. And, you know, we were talking a little bit and, you know, from my experience, especially like early in my career, you know, thinking about 2010 timeframe, the energy industry, specifically oil and gas, were a little bit slow to want to adopt new technologies all the time. It was like, if it's not broke, don't fix it, sort of the mentality, right? And, you know, prices were pretty good, you know, from 2010 to probably like 2014 timeframe. From what I could tell, there wasn't a big push to say, we need to go and, you know, create these new technologies and adopt these new technologies. A lot of times it was like, well, I mean, why would we spend the money? You know, it takes a lot of time. Sometimes it's not implemented correctly, you know, things of that nature. I noticed, especially since COVID, you know, that just like has been a 180 and completely changed. Have you seen it the same way? Or did you see operators adopting new technology back in like, let's say early in your career? Yeah, I think it's a fascinating topic here. And I I totally agree with you. You know, when I first started out in the technology space five years ago, there was a lot of hesitancy to change. You know, there was exactly like you said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality to things. But we've seen that change a lot. COVID has absolutely exacerbated this. Tight, low oil prices and tight budgets have absolutely made companies realize that we need to change if we're going to stay competitive in the global market. We've seen, you know, millennials come into power and who've grown up using technology and understanding that there are different ways of doing things. So I think that has definitely changed and we're starting to see more and more interest in AI. I would also say that you mentioned execution. AI is an end goal. It's not just something that you can plug and play. You've got to build on it to get there. And so I think a lot of companies and a lot of startups have realized along the way that You don't just plug an AI algorithm in and say, okay, we're done. You start with the right data. Are we piping in the right data? Are we storing the right data? Are we doing the right calculations on the data? And we don't just jump to AI again. So we start with the easiest algorithms first. So there could be some basic data analysis algorithms that allow us to get to the next level. And we slowly start building until AI is an end goal when we've got all of our data pipeline in order. One other thing I would say is at my last company, we had a competitor who was coming in from you know, Silicon Valley preaching AI to our customers. And objectively speaking, you know, they probably had a more mature tech stack than us, but they were coming in and telling customers, you know, we're from Silicon Valley, we're smarter than you, we can just come in here and fix all your problems for you. <laughs> uh, I think we know oil and gas companies, that type of messaging is never going to resonate with us. And on top of that, 
they didn't understand the end user's workflow at a really nitty-gritty detail level. So while they were having really advanced AI algorithms, there were a lot of edge cases that they weren't considering because they didn't understand the end user. So we were able to come in and a message our products much more effectively to our customers, you know, talking about the building stages of AI, building trust along the way. Right. But also saying we understand your workflows. We understand all of the different elements that go into this. You know, we're production engineers, we're reservoir engineers. You know, we've lived your day and your life. Yeah, I think it makes a world of a difference when you've walked a mile in your customer's shoes. You know, being able to talk about the problems that you know they have because you had them too. And not only that, I mean it you can speak with conviction and you know they know you're not just trying to sell them this fancy new toy right because you know that if they decide to move forward with your project and your technology and and bring you on as a service provider you know that if things don't go well it doesn't look good for them and they're going to put their name on you or on this project they need it to do well because when push comes to shove and evaluations come down the pipeline or you know certain things happen within the organization you know if your project didn't produce what it was supposed to produce or you overspent here you over I mean every person is graded on their merits right and so if you brought in something and it fizzled out or whatever it may have been it could end up pretty bad for them and they may end up having to look for a job somewhere else and so i think being able to say yeah i understand what you're going through i know here's what i can do to that note, what would you say, like, let's say you're on the other side of it, right? You're back in the oil and gas producer and somebody's you know, approaching you with new technologies. What does it take for somebody who's on that side of the buying process to say, you know what, you need to provide X amount of value. Like how much value needs to be provided in order for people to say, I want to move forward with this project. Is it, you know, 20, 30, 50, 80% savings or non-production time reduction or what is like the tipping point? Yeah. You know, it's a great question. And I think it's a complicated answer too. I think as engineers, we like to think of everything quantitatively and say, Hey, if if you give me a 50% rate of return on this, I'm going to buy. But I think, you know, Going back to the product management side of things, we know there's an emotional side to this as well. So we can generate a ton of value with our products. But if at an emotional level, if we aren't making a product that our customers enjoy using, that they want to open up and start using our product when they get to work in the morning, instead, if it's just a drag to use our product, Mm -hmm. it's not something that they're going to want to use. And we could add a lot of value. But at the end of the day, that emotional feeling inside is going to drag that part of that decision. So, you know, building a product that delights to use is just as important as adding value. I think they go hand in hand with each other. Do you see a lot of technology companies starting to recruit prior engineers and people from not just the oil and gas operators, but the oil and gas service companies? Like, Do you see technology companies that traditionally didn't have those people on staff? Are they starting to go out and find those people now? Yeah. you know, I think you've seen a lot of it. Some of it is layoff induced. You know, there's been a lot of talent been let go from their current companies in the oil industry. And I think technology companies overall have seen that these petroleum engineers have a skill set that could be used for whether it's, you know, data analytics. We have got a lot of experience with that in our industry or product management, project management. These are all things that, you know, come innate to us. So you're seeing a lot of not only in the oil and gas technology space where our, you know, oil and gas skills are directly applied, but even outside of the oil and gas space where you're seeing, you know, some of the fundamental skills that a petroleum engineer builds over their career 
translating to other industries. So specifically, now that you're like you've been helping oil and gas companies, you know, with these digital products for the past few years of your career, what was it about Combo Curve that said, you know, this is something I really believe in. This is a product that I really feel like I could do a lot of positivity, you know, in the industry with, I can make a positive impact with. How are you guys helping people? Yeah, you know, so for me personally, the things that get me excited about Combo Curve are A, solving just an incredibly important set of problems in our industry. As we grow more and more unconventional plays and all of our teams are being asked to do more with less, being able to forecast, perform decline curves at scale more accurately, be able to perform your field development cases at scale instead of having to do them one by one, you know, we can offer our companies and our customers the ability to run dozens, hundreds, and thousands of these field development cases at once so that they can have the confidence in knowing that they are going forward with their best development plan and having really good sense of what the economics of going forward is. As we know, you know, oil is one hundred and ten dollars right now, but a couple, even a couple months ago, you know, having a really good understanding of the economics of your field development plan are really important. And again, for me personally, as I look to join Combo Curve, there's an exciting vision. You know, talking with the founders and the, the CEO. They've got an incredible vision for where this company can go. They've built an incredible product already, and I'm excited to be a part of that to help scale that with them. So you said this was previously companies would do these one by one, and now you can do them at scale. How much time goes into doing one of these forecasting activities? You know, what does like the manpower look like? You know, how much does, I mean, obviously what's it cost and like, if you're able to do, you know, hundreds of thousands or hundreds or thousands at a time, I mean, that's a significant increase. And what's the savings to a company? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the process of going through and performing a full decline curve analysis for all of your wells, going through your entire reserves process on a monthly or quarterly basis can be incredibly time consuming. You know, the average reservoir engineer might be spending whether it be from a couple of days a month to an entire week a month doing that process. So we can take that down to minutes to hours, depending on the complexity of the problem. So the time savings alone is huge for these companies. We always want to be making sure that customers are spending their time doing the most valuable things. You know, we hire highly talented petroleum engineers to do the critical thinking tasks, not to do the mundane, you know, simple tasks. And so we want to take that and automate those processes. So the time savings is huge. But also the scalability is huge. Instead of having to run one case at a time, being able to run hundreds and thousands of cases gives you the insights to know that we are actually putting the best plan forward and we didn't have to spend you know, hundreds and thousands of hours doing it to get there. Because you know, most companies probably don't have the manpower to spend the hundreds of thousands of hours to run that, that many cases to ensure that they're doing the right thing. So not only time savings, but also improving outcomes for them by making sure that they are drilling the right wells, going with the right field development plan all the time. What kind of information does a company already need to have? Like, obviously, I think most of them, and maybe they all don't, I don't know, you can tell me, but what type of information do they already need to know? Like what their break even is, or, you know, like, are they looking at how much infrastructure do we have here? Or what's historically happened in this area? You know, what typically would give a company a reason to go produce one asset over another? Yeah, you know, the cool thing about Combo Curve is we've got a lot of different types of companies using our platform. So it could be, you know, a small shop that is looking to expand how much work they're able to undertake, 
or it could be a company with you know, really mature processes already in place that want to be able to do that quickly and be able to take that mature process to the next step. So I think a lot of these companies have that data in hand, but it's hard to manage that and you know get insights from the data. So we're also undertaking projects to make the data management side of this automated and scalable. So taking data from all of your different data sources and making sure that it's all being processed and being analyzed in live time so that customers aren't spending time doing the basic data management side of things and are able to spend all of their time doing the high value activities. Yeah. I mean, you definitely don't want to turn your people into data entry people, right? And the other thing is like with data, you know, not all data is is clean data. So you have to clean up your data and you have to make sure that it's, you know, I guess, I don't know what the word would be off the top of my head, but it has to be in a format that you can use it in a usable format, I guess, right? Just because you have a lot of data doesn't mean that it's ready to be entered into whatever program you have, right? And so I'm sure there's a lot of upfront, like front load work that needs to be done in order to even get the project ready to run, right? And so um, it sounds like that's what you're spending a lot of time, like Combo Curve, and they're spending a lot of time helping customers with and prepare for to scale their abilities to analyze data. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. You know, you look at the typical ENP, they might have a lot of their data sitting in a SQL database, and then they're going to have another set of data in their production accounting system. And then they'll have, you know, their well history data in another system and well notes in another system. So, so it's all siloed, yeah. Is, is siloed data. So you, yeah, they're going to spend a lot of time cleaning that data before they can even start performing the work. So the way Combo Curve has architected this data management process, we call it Combo Curve Sync. So we're basically automating that entire process, making it easy and reliable to get all of that data in one place, in the right format, processed and ready to go automatically. So let's say for whatever technology companies are consider implementing, what would be maybe like just two or three high level, like here's some things you can do to help you have a successful implementation? Yeah. So, you know, if I were back on the ENP side and evaluating technology companies, you know, I think the first thing that I would be cognizant of is I'd want to be clear about the value that I'm expecting to get out of this. Share as, you know, as much detail about the problems I'm having so that the company can come in and onboard you in an effective manner and make sure that they're guiding you through that process. Be clear about the types of data problems you're having. There's no shortage of data in the industry, but as we've been talking about for a while here, the scalability of that data and turning that data into insights is something that we've been struggling with for a long time. And I think a lot of companies are undertaking different projects and going through that in different ways. So being clear about that. And then, you know, I think a lot of, especially if you're working with early stage startups, these companies are going to be willing to partner with you. So the more effort and partnership you're willing to put in on your side, I think the more you're going to be able to get out of it as well. And last question for you, what advice would you give someone that is maybe considering making a transition into product management or moreover, just technology side from traditional energy, oil and gas, maybe, you know, they're looking to transition over to a technology company. What sort of advice would you give somebody? Yeah. So, you know, just like something I always say of what I've learned from the product management side of things and just, you know, general career advice, we've talked a lot about positioning a product, really understanding as a product, what is my distinctive competency? So I think it's a really powerful exercise for a professional to go through as themselves. How am I positioning myself in the market as a professional? Really analyze what is my distinctive competency myself? What am I the best in the world at or in the top 1% at? And how can I position myself 
to be in a position to succeed based on that and make sure that I'm using my skills to the best of their ability. In terms of transitioning to the technology side, I think, you know, in general, the most common way that people move into product management is through the route that I did is the customer success side of things where, you know, I was an expert in the production engineering side of things. So I moved into the customer success side of things to, you know, shepherd production engineers through our product. And by doing that, I was gaining insights, you know, working at a startup that ultimately enabled me to transition over to the product management side. Awesome. So before we go, I want to remind the listeners that you should enter to win our weekly giveaway from Halliburton Labs. It's a really cool backpack made out of recycled materials. There's going to be a link in the show notes. Please check it out. Also, please be sure to rate, review, and connect with us with any feedback that you may have. Brian, before we go, can you just let the listeners know where they can learn more about Combo Curve, connect with you, and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. You can find Combo Curve online, combocurve.com, or you know, connect with us on LinkedIn. We're constantly posting about new updates and features, all that kind of good stuff. Connect with me on LinkedIn as well, linkedin.com slash Brian Armst. Uh, always happy to meet new people and discuss challenges with all sorts of people. Awesome. Brian, it was great catching up with you again. It had been way too long. I'm so happy that we were able to catch up and you shared your experience with the audience. I think there was a lot of value out of this conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was great catching up with you as well. Thanks for having me on. Okay, take care. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.